Hey guys, I know it's been a long minute since I've recorded and uploaded an episode, and I actually wanted to take this moment to quickly mention how much I appreciate those of you who have reached out about when I was going to record again, and honestly, just genuinely expressing excitement for the next episode. I commend you for your patience, and I'm super grateful for it because it has served as encouragement and motivation for me to bunker down jot down some material and start recording again so i thank you for that so with that being said i'm gonna do something a little differently on this one actually probably for the next couple of episodes definitely gonna nerd out on these on these next ones since i won't be able to release the episode that i have been trying to put together next before i had to start my spring semester i figured i'd begin with these short Bible studies I'm titling A Glimmer of Scripture. These episodes won't be too lengthy, at least that's the goal. Just short but dense gems of a Bible verse or passage that I studied in my personal quiet time or devotional time or through the curriculum that I'm going through um, in seminary. Since I'm a couple weeks into my second semester of school, I figured I'd put together these short studies together for for you guys until I can set aside time to talk and kind of develop or allow to develop other topics. I try to keep them short and sweet so that they serve as more of a, well, exactly what I titled these, um, a glimmer of scripture. Something that shines, something that stands out to you while you're reading especially since quite a bit of people right now are going through those uh, the reading the Bible in a year reading plans and might be in or getting close to entering the second book of the Bible, which is Exodus, which is where this first study will be, specifically Exodus chapter 33. So if you're able to, and if you're not driving or anything like that, snag a physical Bible or open up your Bible app and turn to or click to Exodus chapter 33, where Moses asks the most unimaginable of God, in my opinion. Absolutely astounding stuff. Let's get started. If you're not familiar with the book of Exodus or what it entails, let me bring you up to speed very briefly. The Bible opens with the book of Genesis, where it is described that God creates everything, including man. That man is given a specific commandment, a specific set of guidelines, which he breaks and sends humanity in this perpetual downward spiral, morally, physically, the whole nine. God makes a promise with a man named Abram a couple chapters later who shortly after becomes Abraham and promises to bless him with offspring that is as numerous as the stars. Plot twist, though, well, kinda. He only has two sons, not a nation as numerous as the stars, not yet anyway, one of which is named Isaac. Isaac grows up and has twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob grows up, who is Abraham's grandson, just to kind of help you follow, and has 13 children with four different women one daughter and 12 sons. Out of those 12 sons, one particular son is set apart from the rest and inevitably 
the other sons plot to kill this brother of theirs, this particular son by the name of Joseph. A series of events happen that land Joseph in Egypt, right before a national famine. Egypt at the time was a nation abundant with food and resources, that of which Joseph essentially becomes in charge of, uh, both in distribution and in oversight. This happens by no particular coincidence, just the good old sovereignty of God. All of this is described in magnificent detail in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which brings us both to the people of God in Egypt and the second book of the Bible, which is Exodus. At the opening of Exodus, we are introduced to a new Pharaoh, no longer this generous one who took in Joseph and his brothers during the famine. This new Pharaoh oppresses the people of God, which is Israel, and we're introduced to a new man by the name of Moses. And that's basically where we're at. Now, I want to hone in on the glimmer in this study. The passage I want to focus on specifically is Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. Follow along with me or listen carefully. I'm reading out of the NIV version, but kind of changing a couple things as I read along. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, and here's the kicker. Now, I pray, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, God said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft and in the cleft in the rock, and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now, at this point in biblical history, Moses has seen firsthand unbelievable, miraculous works of God. These, these visible manifestations of God's glory. Let's, let's recap a few. As many of you uh, will be familiar with, because the Moses narrative is quite popular among a lot of people. One of them being uh, God appearing to, to Moses as a burning bush, a burning bush that isn't consumed um, by the fire. Um, 
when Moses is presented in front of Pharaoh, he throws down a staff that turns into a snake and then back into a staff. All of the plagues, or better translated, the signs, like the now river running red like blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, boils, hail, the locusts, the darkness, and then the parting of the Red Sea that leaves, I think, like two miles of of dry land that allows the people of Israel to walk through. The Lord, or God raining down manna from heaven, like this literal bread raining down from heaven that was edible and sustainable. The rock at Hor- uh, the rock at Horeb, which was a rock that was stricken and water just spewed out of it. Mount Sinai, which is where Moses sees, or Moses and the people of Israel see this thunderous display of fire and lightning on top of this mountain. Aaron then, like another one is is uh, kind of different. Um, Moses witnessing God's absolute mercy when he is up on top of, of the mountain with God, um, receiving the Ten Commandments. And while at the bottom, Aaron, which was essentially Moses' right-hand man, building up this false idol, this golden calf, out of the gold that he collected from the people of Israel, and worshiping this false idol after, after, like, or during Moses interceding for them. In chapter 33 of Exodus, and this is from the, the dust cover of, of a book that I recently read, Show Me Your Glory by Stephen Lawson. It says, Moses had reached the end of himself. In their idolatry and complaining, the people of Israel were becoming too much for their leader, which was Moses, to bear. He was getting tired of it. He was overwhelmed. Facing overbearing demands and distress, Moses knew exactly what he needed in order to endure. The exhausted prophet came before the Lord with a daring request. Show me your glory, which was what Moses asked in verse 18. This right here is bold. This right here is a true glimmer of scripture. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod, meaning heavy or weight, like weightiness. In ancient times, the greatness of a man was determined by the weight of his assets. The word represented the greatness of a man in his surrounding community. The weight of his wealth determined the measure of the influence he had. So just imagine an ancient king collecting all of his gold, his jewels, his chariots, his horses, everything he owns, everything that made him powerful, and placing it on this giant scale. The weightiness of it, the weight of it, the weight of your wealth determined your glory, determined your influence. Now, with everything God has shown up until this point, remember, he spoke everything came into existence. That alone should attest to God's infinite weightiness or his glory. 
Another characteristic of God is his holiness, his set-apartness, his otherness. He is unlike anyone or anything else because of this attribute. Glory and holiness are actually closely related in that holiness can be seen as an inward characteristic, more of an internal thing, which is, it's an, it's an essential divine attribute intimately related to who God is. Glory is the outward manifestation of that holiness, more of an external thing. The, it's the radiant splendor of the presence of God. When Moses asked to see his glory, to see the glory of God, God's reply is interesting and worthy of briefly noting here. He replies with, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. This is in verse 19. Moses had asked for God to show him his glory, not his goodness. But yet the word goodness, but yet the word goodness is used here. This indicates that the goodness of God is at the epicenter of his divine glory. His very essence, or um, to remain consistent with the description of glory, his goodness is his weightiness. It's his internal substance. If you cut him open, goodness is what would pour out of him. And guess what? That's what happened when Jesus was pierced on the cross. Jesus prayed to the Father while on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is absolutely magnificent to think about. All of those riveting events Moses saw with his own eyes were the acts of God, not God himself. They were the works of his hands, and but not his face. Moses essentially says, You've been with us, and I want you to continue being with us. If we look back at verse 15, actually, Moses says, Don't give us the land if you're not going to be with us. I know you promised us a land flowing with milk and honey, but that means nothing. That means absolutely nothing if you are not with us. So don't pluck us out of here because this is where you are. We don't want to leave because if we do, you won't be with us. Moses is essentially saying, we want you. I and your people, we want you. How else will the nations know that the Lord favors his people if you are, if you are not with us? The great, a greater vision of the glory of God, such as what Moses received or what he asked for and received, it leads to greater worship of him. The knowledge of God always calls for an immediate response, an immediate response in the lives of those to whom he re, to whom he reveals himself. It is inevitable if it is a true encounter. How is this all related to the here and now? These events and these words and this mighty and daring request Moses makes Moses makes for God to show him his glory, this happened thousands of years ago. What does it mean to me now with the 2021 struggles and temptations I'm dealing with now? I would ask, 
Have you gotten comfortable with the miraculous things God has done in your own life? Like, I don't know, saving you, giving you a new heart with new desires, desires to please him and no one else. That in and of itself is a miracle. If you have gotten comfortable with those things, which I certainly have had those times for sure, have you prayed a prayer like Moses and pleaded with God to show you his glory? I spend hours upon hours a day reading books and sitting in lectures describing what God has revealed in his word. But for what? For me personally, I intentionally spend so much time in these studies for one reason and one reason only. To know God better. To get to the point where I say, Okay, God, I trust you and I love you. It may take an entire three-hour lecture or a 300-page book on on God's attributes for me to believe that. But what I'm the most grateful for is that I eventually do. But why does it take that long, that much studying, that much book work to get to that point? Well, simply because I'm a simple person. I'm prone to forget every single day. Because when my worship isn't directed to the risen Savior and the risen Savior alone, I automatically begin to worship something else. And it is in those moments when I resonate with the people of Israel who built a false idol out of gold as Moses was up on Mount Sinai meeting with God and interceding for them. I can't look down upon them for their stupidity too too harshly because I it is in those moments that I resonate that with them the most. This life is hard and everyone has had their share of troubles and heartaches. But I don't know about you, but I'm tired of the shallow, unsustainable things that promise a false sense of comfort and peace. I want substance. I desire the real stuff. I want tears and honesty and transparency and love and truth. I want to see God's glory. And I see it every time I open up his word. I see it every time I witness a glimmer of scripture shining in the darkness. And I pray you do as well. You may feel that you're above the Bible, religion, Jesus, or think the story of Moses is just a thousand, some thousand-year-old folktale. If you do, don't knock it. Don't knock it till you know. Don't knock it till you try it. I dare you to pray, God, show me your glory. Peace.